0: Welcome to our podcast series, Getting to the Core Issues. Hello, I'm Joanne Boata. And I'm Marianne Harmston. Each segment, we will interview healthcare innovators whose models will help transform the healthcare delivery system and provide solutions to the healthcare puzzle. This segment is focused on the impact and cost of social and intimate relationship violence, and will introduce you to an innovative project designed to improve health system response to violence. Mary and I are pleased to welcome Jack Patrici founder of Growing A New Heart, who is one of the leading experts in the field. Jack, you have a very impressive resume. Can you please share your background and experience with our listeners and tell us why you're so passionate about your work?
1: I started in the field 30 years ago this year, 2019, so I've been thinking, reflecting a lot about my work. I had started working with women and children who were trafficked in over 40 different countries, Then I came back to the U.S. and focused particularly on um, domestic and sexual violence, working at the community level, the state level, working for a demonstration project for the office for victims of crime, and then consulting with different states' approaches to what we call victim assistance. Then I had kids, which made me refocus on community (laughs) And um, I'm still doing both now community level work and consulting and doing some work overseas and directly on state projects.
2: In looking at your resume, it occurred to me, how does someone... Uh, at a very young age. You mentioned that you had been overseas. Was that directly out of school? Was that part of a graduate program? How was it that you went from point A in your education? I don't know where you grew up. Was it in the Vermont area or the Northeast?
1: No, I'm from New York. Uh, okay. my, yeah, My dad from Brooklyn, my mom's from Queens, and I was raised mostly on the island, though I was born in Queens. Um, And I didn't know domestic violence, sexual violence as a field. It was what was happening in my family and my extended family. And I went to college at a women's college, feminist women's college, and I studied feminism and I had all these ideas. And I got a fellowship following college, right out of college. And it was a little heady of an idea. It was to write stories based on how women and children told stories about themselves and how they were influenced by misogyny, white supremacy, colonialism, really big ideas. And when Mm -hmm. I landed in New Zealand, I got a taste of reality where I was working. I got invited to be with the Maori and... Uh, then eventually in Australia with some Aboriginal folks. And they said, this is great, this writing story stuff, but um, can you help us? Can you actually do anything to help? Their whole (laughs)
2: history is based on oral history, isn't it? The Maori and the Aborigine. Did you go to Rotorua in New Zealand? Is that where you went? Well, I was
1: there too as well. But what, what shifted for me was... I mean, it first of all got me out of my head. All those ideas are really good, but how are we going to apply them. And that really shaped the arc of the rest of my career. I still write, I still do storytelling projects with people, but I'm, there's a big part of me that still has that voice saying, okay, and how are, what are we going to do to help? What are we going to do to change at a community level that's going to make a difference?
0: It kind of help. What are they looking for?
1: In the uh, experimental camp with the young Aboriginal boys where I was, um, they had three options. They said, we need someone to drive because I asked, well, what do you need me to do? And they. It wasn't anything I was thinking of. They said, we need someone to drive. And I didn't have a driver's license. And we need someone to cook. And I still don't cook. And I didn't cook. And we need someone to help herd the sheep. So I, having heard all about how docile sheep are, I picked the sheep herding and was a (laughs) spectacular failure. And it was really for the rest of the camp. They used to say, whenever we were tossing ideas, what to do, and they'd say something like, no, don't do that. That'll be like jack herding sheep. So, <laughs> but I did learn like start with what people need. Uh, get in there anyway, even if you're bad at it, get humble and get going. So so, I'm a failed shepherd, and that really launched my career in sexual and domestic violence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the title of a book. Violence Absolutely. One. For our listeners, can you explain yeah. what social and intimate relationship violence means? Like, it, what, is, what does that include in your definition?
1: People in public health will use the phrase intimate partner violence and regular people will say domestic violence, and people in the field will say domestic and sexual violence. And here, here's what we mean and here's why they use those different phrases. So the intimate partner violence is used to distinguish it from general family violence, because family violence could include sibling violence, violence between parents and children, and those are very specific dynamics. They have their own set of data, their own causes, but when you're talking about intimate partner violence, you're talking about violence between current former dating partners or um, spouses, household members. Most states include household members as well. in the data that's collected around these incidents. When we say domestic and sexual violence, the reason why those are put together is because there's an enormous overlap. If you look at sexual violence impact on women or the data related to it, more than half, just over more than half, 51% of sexual violence that women experience, they experience at the hands of a former or current intimate partner. So if you're just thinking I'm gonna focus on domestic violence or dating violence, intimate partner violence includes all of that, you're going to be looking at sexual violence as well. In the field, we mean, if we're talking about intimate partner violence, we we mean a pattern of behavior that is controlling and uses a set of tools where one partner is getting their way over another partner. And of the tools, there's intimidation, violence, sexual violence, and physical violence is just one of many tools. To control, control money, use children, use threats. So we look at a pattern of behavior that uses all those tools in order to get one's way. And that's really different when you know your regular folks or people well, actually, now that there's more movies about it, people like have more exposure to the idea of the pattern. But most people commonly still think of being hit. What's really important to remember about this is that the dynamics used in domestic violence are very conservative. And what I mean by that is that the person who's abusive in the relationship takes the least effort they need. So if they don't need to hurt you physically to control you and they can just intimidate you and still get what they want, that's what they'll do. I want to add that I run programs for people who perpetrate or use violence as well. So we work on that end of it too, as well as survivors of violence. So I'm going to be talking from both points of
0: view. That would be perfect. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, How prevalent is social and intimate partner violence in the United States? In the U.S.,
1: intimate partner violence is one in four women in the U.S. and one in seven men in the world, it would be about 1 in 3 or 35% of women experience physical or sexual intimate partner violence. And if you just focus uh, without the sexual violence, because that one includes um, sexual violence that are non-partner as well, if you just look at intimate partner violence worldwide, it's about 30%, and in the U.S. it's 1 in 4 or 25%.
0: Oh my goodness. Um, And how much is this this really costing us as a society?
1: Oh, yeah. So I know we're going to apply looking at how this intersects with the health system. So I want to look at that particularly because there's lots of different ways to measure costs. And the cost measure I want to talk about is the overall cost of intimate partner rape physical assault and stalking is more than $5.8 billion every year, and nearly $4.1 billion of that is for direct medical and mental health care services. If we're looking at it just financially and the cost and not the moral ethical cost or what it means for the well-being of communities, if we're just looking financial costs, this is such a bite out of our entire economy.
2: I would just like to go over those that figure with you. Are you referring to uh, the uh, the cost in the American healthcare system, or are we talking worldwide at that at that five billion dollar figure?
1: No, this is us. This is just
2: us. This is just in the U.S.
1: This is really expensive, and that's because the consequences of this exposure to violence is not just immediate; it's ongoing. And for your lifetime, especially, like if you're if you're being hurt, controlled, or feeling constant intimidation in a relationship, typically these relationships are lasting, especially if they're kids over time. And mm-hmm. what happens to your health, your your physical system over time, and your mental health when you have a, a, an exposure to violence that's continuous is this buildup of impact across domains of health. It's really likely that there's going to be all kinds of OBGYN-related impacts, but there's other things like increased chance of having asthma, gastrointestinal distresses, all the things that happen when your system is stressed repeatedly over and over time.
2: They are doing more and more studies on that, showing that the impact of stress as it relates to every aspect of life is enormous. We were looking at the actual subsets of who, who's actually prone to domestic violence. Is there a specific demographic that's more prone? And do you see that in you in the studies that you do? And when you spread it across, is it based on other economic drivers? I would think just the stress alone of people in lower socioeconomic areas, um, it certainly goes on in the upper Uh, in the areas where there's more advanced economic returns, but I would think that the stress in some of our uh, different cities and areas, like say a Flint, Michigan, do you see it more in certain demographics or is is that just an assumption that's not really founded in actual results?
1: A really great question. So I'm gonna back us up to really look at what causes violence And this is really interesting, especially, like every time there is a a mass shooting, you'll hear people get on the news and say, we need more uh, funding for mental health services. And certainly we do need more funding for mental health services. But the presumption there is that violence is rooted in a mental illness, like generalized violence. And that's not accurate. By and large, people who are living with mental illness are not more violent than people who are not living with mental illness. It's a very small percentage, like maybe 3%. But those who are violent, who are living with mental illness, are violent for the same reasons that people who are not mentally ill are violent. There's two factors. They have an attitude and belief that violence is okay and they have a community or friend or family that supports it. And if we look at intimate partner violence, the same thing holds. People who perpetrate violence in intimate partnership have attitudes that condone violence. So the World Health Organization and others of us who focus on this field look at the research related to this. They've witnessed violence, but not always. They have community norms So that could be even television, the web, the whole idea of what it means to be in partnership that condone violence when you don't get what you want. And that's where all this discussion about toxic masculinity, that phrase, that's where this is coming from, that Mm -hmm. the social norms that associate with how you're supposed to be are the things that are the risk factor for violence. And you're right that when there is greater economic stressors, the person who would be the survivor of the violence has fewer options to leave. Usually, it's tied as the number one reason why someone would be staying temporarily in relationship. And they do leave. Like that's a misunderstanding. Why don't why don't survivors leave? They do leave. It's just when do they leave? The number one factor that's tied is the. Concern for the kids and with money, financial viability, like how am I going to do this? Literally, there are not enough shelter beds. Well, you know this, that 60% of working Americans now find it hard to meet all the basic necessities. And since 2015, more than half of working Americans make $15 an hour or less So if you add on top of that, I'm thinking of leaving with all my kids. Financial stressors are the number one reason tied with I'm worried about what's going to happen to my kids because we don't have a child protective system that really works for survivors of violence. And folks in that system know that we work closely together. What I mean by that is if child protection is called due to domestic violence, usually the response is to put a burden on the survivor about protecting the children, what, and then puts them at risk for keeping custody of their own children. Organizations
2: like CASA that set up advocates in the court on behalf of children that are stuck in systems like that or yes. in a situation like that. Yes, um, and that
1: works really to the detriment of the survivor who now, because the abusive person says... If you tell anyone, I'll call the child protectives and you'll lose the kids. Yeah. So that's right. one of the tools communities that are poorer, the prevalence, the danger goes up, and our interventions have been working, but only for one segment of the population. So in the last 20 or so years, and since the Violence Against Women Act in 1994, we have had a significant drop in the rates of domestic violence. Significant, but not for everyone, for white middle-class women. And the drop has not followed for women of color black women for latina women it has not followed for people in the lgbtq plus communities so it's showing us our interventions that the way we've been doing it were really designed for but one segment of the population leaving behind the others
2: as the average person looks what are some of the signs that they would be looking for that would alert them to and then what direction would they take?
1: I love this question. So I do these retreats with women called Happy and Hard to Fool. And it's both preventative, and you can also go if you've had a relationship that you think you're suspecting, I don't think that was really safe or healthy. Either you know because you were hurt or you feel emotionally hurt, And here are some of the things I, the basic thing that I ask everyone to look for is when you're getting into an intimate partnership, you can expect that in the beginning, there'll be a romantic phase and you'll feel expansive and so will they. And uh, another thing that you can expect is that you will have a conflict phase. And most people, especially Americans, very romantic, and our romantic comedies don't really do much with this. Most people think that when the conflict phase hits, that the romance is over. And what I'm saying is you don't know what kind of relationship you have. And this applies to jobs, communities, politics, as well as intimate partnership. You don't know what you have until you have a conflict. Yes. Right. That's when you find out what you've got. And so I ask people will text me that I've worked with and say, Oh, Jack, I'm in a great relationship now. It's amazing. And I say, great. Have you had a conflict? They say, no. I say, okay, get back to me after you've had one, because what you're looking for is can the person you're with stand it? How do they treat you? If you completely disagree on your values on uh, what your priorities are, how you spend time, money. And I say this for work places as well, like which are the priorities, where's the money spent? And you can have a healthy breakup that is not abusive. But the cornerstone of being abusive is if I don't feel comfortable in some way I use abusive tactics over
2: you. You know how they're starting to integrate programs in primary schools and in high school for learning how to manage money and understanding a checking account, understanding the concept of savings, because it seems that we have a whole generation that somehow thinks that the money fell off the trees or the opposite. Do you think a curriculum that addresses both at a grammar school level, you know, at that level, and then at a high school level, so that people would be aware of just exactly what what you're speaking to. It's, it's when the rubber hits the road, as they say. It isn't until you're faced with an adversarial issue, or perhaps where you have two different perspectives, and then how the person reacts to that. I have a friend who had a first marriage at 62 years of age, a mm-hmm. professional woman, and uh, met a, a surgeon who was divorced. She was struck by his kindness, and it manifested itself in this particular incident. She has a sister who's a, a hoarder, now is in a, a supervised living arrangement. But prior to that, um, she would get calls, and she would go up, and he went with her. And she said, you could barely enter into the living quarters. And as she was trying to deal with sister's emotional stability at the time and get past just even that, she looked over and she saw this world famous surgeon at the sink starting to do the dishes. Mm. That's the moment she fell in love with him because she didn't know how he would possibly react to this type of a situation, which was part of her world for so many years. Here he was just starting to clean up the dishes. That told her more about his character than so many of his surgical awards could have. That's his passion, that's his, his marvelous accomplishments. But the the act of coming from the heart that she saw bonded them in a way that that Mm -hmm. goes to the heart of, I mean, certainly his reaction when he entered that apartment that day probably set the tone one way or the other, the direction of where that relationship would go. That's an unusual circumstance, but every one of us in a relationship hits them over and over and over again. If you don't have a partner that you can work things through, that there's a semblance of a continuity that results in a positive outcome at some point. That relationship is usually doomed.
1: I'm so glad you said that it happens repeatedly because one of the surprises that folks don't really know is that if you're in a healthy relationship, you will go through a romantic phase, a conflict phase, and then reevaluating your relationship for the rest of your lives. So that you could be 25 years in and you're reevaluating, I think I, Need to go back to school, or I think oh, I actually raised the grandchildren and I raised our children, and my job is done, and that's what the partnership was about for me. So I'm done. And people are always shocked, like, wait a minute, what happened to Grandma? I
0: mean,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Hard <laughs> <laughs> at doing podcasts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Grandma reevaluated the relationship, and the thing is, if you reevaluate and you stay together, you can have. another romantic phase. Over time your conflict phases become very symbolic and short and effective. You could be like the shoes and that's representative of 2,000 arguments you've had and worked out about the shoes and they're not destructive. What most people don't know is the kind of conflict that someone who is abusive has is completely different than a healthy relationship conflict. It's not a lack of skill. And all the skills and couples counseling won't help you. There's a set of things that they do and believe that you cannot work with. You can't be a better communicator and hope it works out. You can't try harder. You can't be clearer, better listener. And so I teach people to recognize what those set of behaviors and values are. And then understand you can't fix that. They have to do that
0: talk a little bit more about how this impacts a community
1: family well-being okay so there's a survivor which would typically most often be female mom let's and let's say it's in a heterosexual relationship though that's not always the case the impact on her ability to function as a mom giving even though uh, moms who are survivors do a great job they put their kids before themselves but there's an impact on her health and the quality of connection that she can have. There's an impact on the children. It's mitigated by lots of protective factors, like what's the income in the family? Do they have sports? Are there significant family members? What's their gender? What's their birth order? All kinds of things. But there's an impact on the kids, an impact on how they learn in school, impact how they do in testing. Then there's um, things she's not contributing to her community. It impacts the faith community where people become more isolated because they are afraid their pastor or leader won't respond in a way that's helpful if they tell. It just has these reverberations for all the things that the survivor's not able to give and all the things that the kids can't be that they could be that are not just about economics that about the well-being of the community cuz all the energy is being used in managing this abusive behavior all the creative energy all of the time that survivors and young and kids put into managing what's going on when an abusive person is abusive
0: is not being put into community. And can you talk about the social determinants of health? And how do these impact the way maybe we need to think about population health in order to combat social and intimate partner violence? The
1: Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the University of Wisconsin Population Health Institute really help folks rethink how we look at what determines health, what factors are there, and to help us strategize what we should be doing to help the overall health of a population. Social determinants of health, those are modifiable or changeable factors contributing to our health and well-being. 20% of that is the quality of the clinical care and access prior to this thinking coming out of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Folks would in the
0: healthcare
1: industry look at how the access to and the quality of the care that they are given. But if you look, that's only 20% of the factors contributing to health. So that's not actually the most effective place to look. The other 80% are a combination of social and economic factors, community safety being one of them, support. 10% is the physical environment, housing and transit. And 30% are what we think of as behaviors, exercise or sexual activity or alcohol and drug use. But if you think about that, alcohol, drug use, eating, overeating um, is often used to cope with the other factors. So if we think more upstream instead of just on the impact, we're going to have to look at those modifiable factors that have the biggest impact, like the environment. It, are people safe? Are they safe enough so that they're not actually coping with other you know, sexual activity or alcohol or drug or tobacco use in order to deal with the stresses in the other areas? So this has suddenly made health systems get connected to folks in the social services Who have been dealing with social economic factors and quote-unquote behaviors that they know are coping with the social and economic factors. It's a bridge to bring us together, which is really exciting to me.
2: What you have discussed with us is phenomenal. And I think the subject is so over-encompassing that we probably could spend days talking about it and maybe at one point we can come
0: back to you we thank you so much jack for more information about jack and her work please visit our website at edsajq.com don't forget to share this podcast with your family friends and colleagues thank you what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation